I'd marry again if I found a man who had $15 million who would sign over half to me and guarantee that he'd be dead within a year. Betty Davis Chapter 18 On a Saturday following the first week of shooting, I woke, and for a few brief moments didn't know how old I was, what house I was in, where my parents were, if I was married or had a child. I was just Billy waking. Light was streaming into the windows and I felt buoyant, rising, free. I stretched. I filled my lungs and splayed my fingers, watching the wavering silhouette of a branch on the illuminated bright white weave of the curtains, just beyond my reach. And then with a tangible rush and a cognitive snap, I was anchored again in my body. Three decades of life accounted for and a son asleep across the hall. Film hours can do very odd things to your brain. East of Beverly Hills, in a hilly neighborhood overlooking an old reservoir, Jane Dryden was seated across the breakfast table from her fiancé, Gilberto. He had a solid temperament, a draftsman's eye for space and form, and a streak of whimsy she found enchanting. They both were tousled and flushed and smiling, he was writing something in a strong hand with serifs and shading on the back of a discarded blueprint. I will meet you at the church in five hours. Two blissed-out designers feathering a nest, with family and friends in attendance. The event couldn't help but be divine. Jane was thinking of a vaulted ceiling, polished pews and garlands of white blossoms, of fragrant orange, jasmine, and tuberose. Gilberto was enjoying both the memory of their amorous awaking and the way Jane looked in one certain moment with a sun on her face. No more details needed. They were destined to be extremely happy with one another. Later that morning, the wedding party started to arrive in Pasadena. Jane's mother was a doctor, her father a dean at Caltech. Their home was walking distance to campus and not at all far from the Huntington Hospital. Jane was the youngest sister to three brothers, two now with families of their own, all living within a mile or so of their parents. The rest of the stater-than-stayed Dryden clan saw her as bold. She had gone to college as far away as possible and followed that by working for two years in Chicago the mere notion of which set the Drydens all a shiver. Chicago. When Darla and Natalie arrived at the sprawling old home, they did a quick head count. Eleven of the family, both large and small, were milling from room to room. Make that twelve. Turning in the entryway, they saw Jane hauling a garment bag out of her car and over the lawn, up to the front path. Give your sister a hand, Mrs. Dryden urged one of her six-foot-tall sons out the door. What kind of animals have I raised? She chided affectionately, while Natalie and Darla flashed each other a look of recognition. Jane, their nanny friend turned landscape architect from the park, was the spitting image of Mother Dryden of Pasadena. Once upstairs in a very spacious bedroom with an adjoining bath, Darla said, Ah, oh, I love this place. Natalie, unzipping the garment bag, commented, who wouldn't? Jane sat perched on the edge of a slipper chair, beaming. Darla mused, feckin' brilliant and gobsmackin' gorgeous both. 
They all grinned at each other. I better find the steamer, said Jane, and she stepped out to the hall calling, Mom! In the bedroom, Natalie asked, Weren't Billy and Polly supposed to be here the same time we were? I, a Thomas Brothers map open on the car seat beside me, was just then making my way to the very posh, very old California Hillcrest Avenue and Jane's parents' house. Christ, I murdered as I pulled into the drive as instructed and parked the car. The palms that lined the street were at least a hundred years old. The grounds were emerald green and rolling, the houses epitomizing the grandeur of another era. I looked around and felt like an arrivist. This is where Jane came from? Open-hearted, down-to-earth, hard-working, Silver Lake-dwelling Jane. That was, as Natalie would say, a wow. Mr. and Mrs. Dryden greeted me at the door. I have a feeling you're Billy. Mrs. Dryden gave me a hug and directed me upstairs. I made my way past a few kids and some vaguely familiar-looking men and climbed the stairs. I could hear chatty voices and soft laughter, and on the landing gasped with a kind of quiet, intense joy when I saw my friends in Jane's room. Stepping over the threshold, I noticed Natalie, whose face was usually innocent of cosmetics, was today skillfully made up, if minimally. She and Darla were still dressed casually, but their hair was swept back, styled and shining. Jane was steaming out a gown that was draping, gathered, a form-fitting sheath with a train and veil that looked like it had been stored pristinely, waiting for this day, since the 1930s. Madeleine Viognier, Jane explained. She did this for my grandmother. Our friends nodded in appreciative awe. She was married in Pasadena, too, and this gown came all the way from France. Why, I couldn't tell, but my eyes filled with tears. I was just so damn glad. I still don't know where Polly is, Natalie worried. She's never late, Darla added. Has anyone talked to her? Jane asked. At that precise moment, Polly hadn't yet left the west side. She had slept far too long and not alone. She was still in bed, not her bed, looking up at the ceiling. Said ceiling spanned a cottage tucked away on the grounds of the Chateau Marmont. A baby was cooing and babbling in the next room. Cooper Daniels, the frequent star of my fantasies, was on the cusp of waking, wrapped in sheets, quite naked, just as I often envisioned him, euphorically, as I had always dreamed, spent and then restored, sleep and sex, a winning combination. He stirred and reached, and opening his eyes, said, Sylvie's awake. I know. Cooper sat up, picked his jeans up from where he had dropped them, dragged them up his legs, and walked across the hall. Polly took the opportunity to quickly dress. She located her bag, her car keys, and was just about to race away for a very important date when Cooper ambled back into the bedroom, Sylvie in his arms, sucking on a bottle. Hi, he said. Polly certainly was not immune to the pull of basic biology and pure or better impure lust. Cooper was almost exactly as I described, which left Polly whose boldness was only relative to that of the Dryden clan, 
with what to her was a dilemma. She might not use the word much, and usually not in the sexual context, but she liked to fuck. On the one hand, it was tricky, and due to her friendship with me, ethically, yeah, ethically questionable. It made her cringe to think about, yet on the other hand, where are you going in such a big hurry, beautiful, he asked. She blushed, glanced up, had to repress an urge to touch him and said, I'm a bridesmaid and I'm late. I had no idea what time it was. Can you come back afterwards? Uh, Cooper, I'm sorry. I, I don't think I can come back ever. The words were out of her mouth before she had a chance to think. One of the things that made Polly such a good lawyer was her ability to read people's faces. Cooper's was telegraphing next to nothing. Maybe a little dip in one eyebrow. It was very hard to say. I'm, I'm so, so sorry. I'll try to call you from the wedding reception. Cooper shifted Sylvie in his arms and tilted her bottle for more effective flow. Yeah, who's getting married? Do you know Jane Dryden? I don't think so. Should I? Friend of Billy's and mine. Yeah. Why don't you try to call me from the reception? Polly, like me, was a sucker for a stoic. After having hurried home and making a frantic call to me, because only Darla and I among the friends had cell phones, and Polly couldn't face a vexed Darla, she showered and put on her bridesmaid's gown. Polly arrived at the church on time for the wedding, but an hour and a half after she had promised. Her tardiness was much remarked upon. Several Dryden sons who were acting as ushers chivied her into a room off the sanctuary where the bridal party was waiting for their entrance. Jane, veil in place, gown on, a vision, flung her arms around Polly. You're here! Natalie, saying nothing, handed her a bouquet. Polly knew enough that when she lied to do it briefly, without detail, with self-deprecation and several apologies included. God, just kill me now. I am so sorry. I, I don't know what happened. One minute I was having coffee and the next I was screeching on the phone to Billy I was late. I didn't remember any screeching, just an intense, I'm running behind, I'll meet you at the church. Don't hold the ceremony. I will be there. I will be there as fast as I can. I was somewhat surprised Polly didn't arrive with a police escort. She must have driven 95 miles per hour all the way. Darla, glancing up at the clock, remarked, Cutting it close, counselor. She was going to say more, something acidic that was burning to get out when she gentled. Jane had her head inclined thoughtfully. She was gazing directly at Polly, and she looked like a goddamn saint. But you're here. That's all that matters. Okay. Natalie adjusted Jane's veil so it fell just so. It's time. We are not the same persons this year as last, nor are those we love. It is a happy chance if we, changing, continue to love a changed person. Leave it to a Pasadena Episcopalian to quote Somerset Mom. 
I stood on the steps to the altar, flanked by Natalie on the left and Darla and Polly on my right. With all the haste and planning, here we were, Jane, serene in repose, but with excitement and joy rising, her quietude reaching out and touching each and every one. Darla, her vinegary aspect dissolved to reveal her essential sweetness and loyalty. Natalie, for whom Radiant would ordinarily be simply too, too déclassé, was at least doing an extremely good imitation. Polly, squeaking in as delayed to the proceedings as permissible, was composed and lovely. I wondered what could have possibly held up the most organized woman I knew and shrugged it off in the glory of the moment and in the knowledge of L.A.'s unpredictable traffic patterns. The reception was held al fresco at the Dryden's. It was April, and old wisteria vines hanging with lavender blossoms trailed from a portico that ran the length of the back of the house. Tables had been set in between garden beds. A wooden floor was laid on the lawn. After champagne and dinner, dusk fell and paper lanterns began to glow in the trees. At this point, I was a bit giddy and decided to go inside. I wanted to find my purse and my phone, make a stop in the bathroom, and most importantly, check in before the lovebirds were sent off on their honeymoon. I wanted to say goodnight to Jake and make sure Cooper was settled and on track for Monday's filming. If he needed me, I could clear Sunday. Better yet, he and Sylvie could come over Sunday afternoon, have a meal, and some semblance of a normal life before he returned to the set the following day. On my way to the main stairwell, I stopped to glance inside a room full of children on couches or lying on the carpet, all eyes on the TV as the animated version of Beauty and the Beast played on. One man amid the captivated throng motioned me in as a candlestick danced on the screen, belting out, If you're stressed, it's fine dining, we suggest. I sat on the arm of a couch as the man spoke low. They're all jacked up on cake and Coca-Cola. Not a single one of these monkeys will sleep tonight. He held out his hand. I'm Cousin Ted and your bridesmaid, Billy. Pleased to meet you. Cousin to the bride or groom? Bride, watch out. We are legion. I laughed. I stopped trying to keep track about 10 minutes after I got here. Upstairs, I located my things and was just about to call Cooper when I caught a view out the window, over the lawn and on the street. A valet was opening Polly's car door. She darted in and pulled away from the curb. That was odd. She left early. She left without saying goodbye. She arrived so late and left so early. Hmm. Oh, well. I punched in Cooper's number. He answered on the first ring. Hey, baby, that was fast. Cooper? Billy! In 1993, caller ID was something rare. Did I catch you at a bad time? All traces of sensuality edited out. Cooper responded cheerfully. Nah, what's up? I could hear the band playing the opening bars of It Had to Be You on the lawn and lilting voices downstairs and outside. Just checking in. You and Sylvie want to come over for lunch tomorrow? We can go over your shot list. Hey, wait. Can you hear that? 
glad to be you. I wandered around and finally found somebody who could make me be Sounds like the wedding's still growing strong. I told you I was at a wedding today? Uh, sure, Jane somebody. Jeez, I've been so busy, I can't remember what I said. I did? Uh, yeah, Jane Dryden. Oh, I was sure I hadn't mentioned a thing about it. Cooper had so much on his plate, he didn't need the specifics of my social calendar. So tomorrow... I was beginning to come down from the party high. Yeah, how about I call you around 10 and we figure it out? At the bottom of the stairs, I saw Cousin Ted with a can of Coke in his hand. He grinned boyishly. Busted! He paused. The sparkling bridesmaid he encountered a few minutes before had disappeared. I was frowning. You want this? He raised the soda. Or can I get you something stronger? I stood on the step above Ted, my hand still on the banister. Can I ask you something? Yeah? Why would a person answer the phone, Hey, baby? If they knew who was calling and really liked them? I didn't feel like anyone's baby. Right. Thank you. I understand they have an open bar here. Lead on, Cousin Ted. What seemed like a lifetime later, I would recount the events of that day delightfully, deliciously, omitting certain incidents that would have ruffled the placid waters of friendship, not to mention my continuing professional relationship with Cooper. At the time, I was devastated. Thank God for tradition, rites of passage, and the Dryden dynasty. Thank God for Mr. Booker. I returned home, not so late, and completely sober. The pendulum had swung from exaltation to stone-cold reality. The facts I kept repeating to myself were these. My friend Jane had set a course for a beautiful life, and it had been a beautiful day. My friend Polly had gone to bed with Cooper prior to the beautiful day, and probably sometime in the evening during. Polly had saved my ass during my separation from Dave. I was responsible for Polly meeting Cooper. Cooper was unmarried. Cooper's only interest in me seemed to be what would later be called a fuck buddy, and that was very early on in our association. Now we were in business together. Now I would be responsible for his child if he died prematurely. I had no romantic claim to him. The only romance that existed was in my mind, and similar thoughts did not possess Cooper. In the kitchen, Mr. Booker was seated at the table reading The New Yorker. He looked up. Good evening, Mrs. Taylor. And I burst into tears. Tears that had welled up and collected for over a decade. Tears of remorse, disappointment, and loss. It was the kind of crying that hurt. Mr. Booker stood and drew me to his shoulder and patted my back. Shh, there now. Everything's all right. He let me cry. After a decent interval, he gave me a glass of water and had me drink it. Carefully, he advised, and slowly. I did as Mr. Booker directed. I went to my room, washed my face, 
put on my pajamas and returned to the kitchen for a cup of milky tea. I was grateful for Mr. Booker's presence and marveled at the thought that I'd never seen him in his pajamas. Informal attire for Mr. Booker was signaled by the removal of his tie. Once in a while, he wore a cardigan instead of a suit coat, but if so, only with tie, as he was now. Mrs. Taylor, I believe you will find as you age there is no division between one's work life and personal life. Characteristics that lead to cordial relations are deeply, deeply personal. This applies to work as well as home. In all walks, one must conduct themselves accordingly and hope others do the same. I wondered, how did you know? No, I know nothing in particular, Mrs. Taylor. I do, however, know a great deal in general. I know you came home distraught. There are only a few scenarios that can account for that. My friend Polly slept with Cooper Daniels. Your attorney? She apprised you of this fact whilst you were at the... the where were you, at the wedding? Of course you were. I'm, I'm sorry. It's just hard for me to see you cry. Thank you. No, I, I figured it out. I called him to see if he wanted to have lunch with us tomorrow so we could go over some things, and I figured it out. I see. I kept sipping my tea. He continued, These things happen. When all is said and done, sex is merely another form of communication. It would be best if this conversation between your attorney and Mr. Daniels played itself out without your involvement. I would suggest tomorrow you had a quiet day with Jake, perhaps an excursion to the Museum of Natural History, but by all means, keep tomorrow small, practical, doable. Do you see what I'm driving at? Mr. Booker, when are you going to retire? When Jake leaves for college, or sooner if appropriate. I was near panic at the thought of him going anywhere. How old will you be when Jake goes to college? Seventy. Would you consider staying here when you retire? I mean here. I placed my palm firmly on the kitchen table. Thank you. I had not considered it. But now that you mentioned it, I will. I, I will consider it very, very carefully. It's not London, but... No, it is not. It is warm and sunny, free from an oppressive class structure. A, a little absurd, but quite charming. I like it. I will think about it when the time comes. When the time comes, do you think you could call me Billy? Most likely not, Mrs. Taylor. I can live with that. Very well. I expect nothing less. And now if you'll excuse me, he stood, I shall bid you good night. Good night, Mr. Booker. Good night. You have done well and have much to be proud of. Don't ever let circumstances convince you otherwise. I love you, Mr. Booker, I said very quietly as he walked out of the kitchen into the hallway. He paused, turned, and said distinctly, Likewise, and don't forget to turn out the lights. I watched as he moved out of sight and drank my tea. Hearing good advice was one thing. Internalizing it and acting on it was another. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.